We'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark, the second chapter. Mark is introducing us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with his gospel. And he is marching very quickly, as we've said over and over, from the narratives that supply the reason that there was such hostility around the Lord Jesus to the cross. More than any other of the gospel writers, Mark is on his way in a hurry with the repeated refrain, immediately, immediately, immediately. He wants to get us to see the cross, but not without understanding why Jesus was executed and what the cross actually means. Well, this morning we're going to find another one of the reasons that began to to pick the scab of self-righteousness that was extant in Israel during the time of our Lord's ministry. Let me read the text for us and then we'll dive in. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. John, that is John the Baptist, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. Let's begin our study this morning by asking a simple question. How do you, and by you, I mean you, not the generic you. How do you personally measure and evaluate a person's spiritual maturity? Let me ask another way. How do you size someone up spiritually? How do you tell how mature they are? How do you tell how spiritual they are? How serious they are? How can you tell how, in the words of the New Testament, religious they were? Ask another way. What criteria would you apply to test to see if someone is truly serious about their relationship with God? Think about that. How would you test someone's authenticity? How would you test their seriousness? On the other side, if you desired to demonstrate and show your seriousness about the Lord, how would you do so? If you wanted people at church or at work or in your neighborhood to know that you were quote unquote religious a Christian, serious about the Lord? How would you do that? Well, this is significant in terms of evaluating spiritual seriousness and maturity when you come to the New Testament. 
Think about this. The most well-respected, the most revered people in the Jewish culture were the religious leaders. They were the celebrities. They were the rock stars. They were the movie stars. They were the people everyone wanted to be around and everyone wanted to be like. They were the people everyone wanted to impress. There's a, several groups of these people. We've, we'll meet them throughout the Gospel of Mark. There were the Pharisees. These were the, were the, were the religious conservatives of Judaism. There were the Sadducees. They were the religious liberals. And then there were the theologians who were called the scribes or the lawyers. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees both had their own theologians. Both had their, their scribes. But the highest level were the scribes. They were the theologues, the theologians. All this group, this group of people functioned as celebrities in a Jewish culture, listen, that revolved around religion. What was most important to the people alive during uh, the time of Christ, at least who called themselves Israelites or Jewish, was Jewish worship, temple propriety, understanding the law, understanding the application, understanding how the rabbis and the midrash would instruct people on how to apply the law. Now, here's what you have to kind of peer through. So you have all these groups. You got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the lawyers. And they were constantly in a battle with each other for one-upsmanship. It was kind of a first century pop culture among those who considered themselves serious about God. And this showed up primarily in three areas, and you see all three of these areas addressed by our Lord in the gospel. They would compete for the admiration of people by their employment of these three exercises. They wanted the hoi polloi or the common people to look to them as a greater celebrity than others by how they prayed, gave alms, and fasted. Just for a moment, I want you to look at this. Turn back over to Matthew chapter 6. You remember Matthew is uh, um, describing Jesus, uh, recording rather, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And at the centerpiece of of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' dismantling of self-righteousness. Well, in Matthew 6, verse 5, we'll come back to Matthew 6 in a moment, by the way. He talks about the, the prayer part of these, these, uh, these religious celebrities who wanted people to be attracted to them, admire them. He says, verse 5, Matthew 6, 5, when you pray, you are to not be, not to be, like the hypocrites. There's an important distinction. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners. So that they may be seen by who? By men. There it is right, right in black and white. I mean, imagine being in a walking culture. And it's one thing to go to the synagogue and hear somebody pray long and loud. But it's something else to walk by the street corner and see someone raising their hands in holy array in garments that were supposed to look like they were holy, standing on the street corners, inviting people to listen to them pray. That's what was happening. Now Jesus breaks on the scene just outside of the Lake of Galilee 
in the northern shore, coming around, interacting with the people, and he turns the criteria for pleasing God upside down as related to these celebrities. In fact, in our text today, we see that the Lord upsets their wrong view of fasting. Now, Mark has just shown us the relationship that Jesus has with sinners by healing the paralytic and also forgiving his sin. Remember, he forgave his sin before he healed him and the paralytics lowered through the roof. And then he calls Levi or Matthew, a tax collector who is standing at a toll booth on the road, sitting there waiting for people to come by, charging them exorbitant taxes. He was despised and hated. And Jesus says, I want you to follow me and be one of my disciples. They go to his house, they have a feast, and that becomes the stuff of gossip instantly in Capernaum. Now he's going to turn to two big issues. This morning we're going to see him look at fasting, and in the next two passages, he's going to pick on their view of the Sabbath. Now, this is important because these became, listen, manageable expressions of piety that they could control and for which they could show off. Now, just back up one step for a moment. It's important to see what Mark is doing in these narratives. There are five stories that all build together to explain the plot against Jesus. And it's all going to climax, look down back to Mark, in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Everything is building for Mark's turn in the whole book in the last phrase of verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began considering, conspiring rather, with the Herodians against him. Here it is. As to how they might destroy him. That's what Mark is setting up. Why did they want to destroy this Nazarene teacher? Well, let's remember where we are. Jesus has forgiven sin in their presence. He told the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And they rightly said, only God can forgive sins, thus outing him as admitting and proclaiming that he is indeed God. Then he offended their sensibilities by calling Matthew, by calling Levi to be one of his followers, And the question at hand is simple. They start following him around. They're looking at everything he's doing. They're going to try to trap him at every conversation and in every situation. So they raise this question. Why do John's disciples, this is John the Baptist, why do his disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees and the Pharisees themselves, why do they fast? But we've noticed something. Now we find out they've been spying on Jesus and his followers. But your disciples don't fast, which is contextually important. Where did they just leave? Matthew's house. Having a huge feast. And apparently this was on a day that these Pharisees had called as a day of fasting. At the heart of this passage, Jesus is going to raise a theme that Paul's going to pick up on. We'll look at that in a moment, that he's going to continue to teach on, and that is the issue of the newness, the freshness, the differentness of the gospel compared to their 
old application and their broken application of a religious system of works. What they're asking is, how can we take you seriously? How can we take your disciples seriously if they're not following the protocols for fasting? We're fasting and they're not. They're feasting. How can we take you serious if you're not fasting with us? Now, this idea of something new compared to something old is going to be an idea that Paul is going to blossom in his epistles. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, rather? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation, new creature. Old things have passed away, and guess what? Behold, all things are what? New. I think Paul must have had this narrative in mind when he penned that very famous verse. Now let's break down this passage together. We're going to look at it in in a two-part tutorial on the newness that Christ brings. A two-part tutorial on the newness that Christ brings. The first, we just have to look at what's happening. It's a provoking situation. In other words, the old and the new collide, a provoking situation. We've already alluded to it, verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. That's important. They were judging someone else based on their own standard of their own application of righteousness. And they came and said to Jesus, um, excuse me, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Let's talk for a minute about what a fast is. Fast is simple. You don't eat. You skip meals. And the idea was you skip a meal so that you can give concentrated focus to something spiritual. By the way, all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this situation exactly after the feast they had at Matthew's house. It's significant. And skipping meals had become something uh, uh, in the time of Jesus that he never intended it in the Older Testament. It had blossomed and bloomed into something different. Now, the chronology is important. Remember, the previous context, the Lord was unmistakable in what he taught that was directly opposed to everything the scribes and the Pharisees taught and did. And he's going to continue that. They taught the way of salvation through self-righteous effort, through legalistic works, through application of the law that they even added to the Old Testament. But here, Christ shows that salvation was the result of a divine gift, divine grace, believing in him. His message is that of forgiveness and repentance, not religious, religious rituals. Now, this is, this is what's really intriguing to me. If you study your Old Testament, there's only one single fast required in the Old Testament. Leviticus 16 says you fast on the day, before the day of atonement. Only one. Now that's important. One fast called for the entire nation one day a year. But by the time you get to the Pharisees and Sadducees, remember they were trying to one-up each other? 
They started, well, Tuesday is our day, Wednesday is our day. And then the Pharisees said, we fast two days a week. And it began to be um, a right of, uh, of bragging. The, the, we fast more than they do. And now it becomes, we fast and the disciples don't. Now, there's nothing in the text that indicates this was the day of atonement. We think the Lord would have fasted on that day. They just went over to Matthew's and had a big feast. Leviticus 16, 29, 30. The day of fasting is the day associated with the day of atonement. Now, here's a question to ask, okay? How did people know you're fasting? How do people know that you're fasting? And the reality is only if they tell you they are. Listen, I believe in fasting. I've fasted myself. I've been caught fasting. I've caught others fasting. I've gone to lunch with someone and, and, and they've you know, ordered a, a water with uh, an iced tea or something. And, really, and, and I said, oh, are you not, are you not eating today? Well, you know, I'm, look, I'm fasting. And they're trying to downplay it. That's different than saying, hey, you want to go to lunch tomorrow? Sure, good. You go to lunch. They order the chicken salad. What do you want? I'm sorry, Mr. Waiter. I'm fasting today and just wanted you and everyone else to know that I'm not eating today. That's what was happening in the lives of these people. He addressed this also in the Sermon on the Mount. You can look back over, you can listen. Matthew 6, verse 16. He says, whenever you do fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. Now we find his assessment. Because they neglect their appearance. So they will be noticed by men that they are fasting. I mean, imagine if they would put on drab clothes and walk around with a gloomy face. And they would look sad and hungry. And people would be eating this nice pita bread. And they would go, oh, that looks so good. But I can't have any because I'm spiritual and I'm fasting. He says, they neglect their appearance so that they'll be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, this is, the, this is, this is sweet. Jesus says, but you, when you fast, anoint your head with, with oil and, and wash your face. Dress up, look good. So that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who notices in secret. Because he sees what is done in secret and he will reward you. Now that is not saying that if you're fasting and someone asks you, you have to lie. It's okay to say, look, I'm fasting and let it go. This is, this is a whole different scenario. These were men who made a, 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 a mockery out of fasting by trying to show off and then have fast more than others. They would add days of fasting. And apparently this was one of the days that they had appointed extra biblically to fast and the disciples were having a really nice meal at Matthew's house. It should not have been obvious that the Pharisees were fasting. But it was intended to be noticed that Jesus and his disciples were feasting. So they noticed Jesus and the disciple feasting at Levi's house, at Matthew's house. And 
this had to be on a day that they had called one of their extra biblical fasts. So that's the situation. They say, Jesus, we, we, we believe that if you're spiritual, if you know the rules, you fast like us and you and your friends aren't. That's a problem. It's a provoking situation. And you had to know that Jesus sitting at that banquet at Matthew's house knew exactly what he was doing. Now that's all the setup for this second part of the tutorial on the newness Christ brings. He provides a threefold lesson. And the lesson is the old and the new are completely incompatible. Now, he's going to give three illustrations, actually one illustration and two examples or two parables that show that fasting has a spiritual dimension that goes beyond the external application. And the point is not so much about doing a fast, but it's about the incompatibility with the old way of trying to be self-righteous and please God by what you're doing and the new way of Jesus, which he introduces in the coming teaching. So let's break this down. Illustration number one, fasting and feasting. Illustration number one, fasting and feasting. Verse 19, Jesus answers. He says to them, while the bridegroom is with them, stop the presses. Who's talking about weddings? I love what Jesus does so often. They ask a question and he says, well, let's talk about weddings. What? We weren't talking about weddings. We were, weddings involve feasting. We're actually talking about fasting. And Jesus just says, hmm, tell you what. While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants, the groomsmen, the people who are with them, of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away, taken away from their presence, and they will fast in that day. Now, remember, fasting was what you did in times of grief and sorrow or reflection. They did that because of the, the animal sacrifice in the Day of Atonement. And even uh, as it progressed in the synagogue worship, a fast was originally well-intended to say, when you are so burdened and so self-reflective in a, in a position of needing to repent, stop eating so that when you get hungry, you can remember. That can be the reminder, the string around your finger to come back to the Lord. It's what you did when you were in grief or sorrow or repenting. Feasting was a time you did when you celebrated, like at a wedding. Now, the attendants of the bridegroom here were like the groomsmen of today, but they were much, much different. Um, they had different responsibilities than most groomsmen do today. We have wedding coordinators. We have, we have people who help. Uh, we have people at the church who help. We have caterers who help. That was the attendance in Jesus' day. They did that. And it wasn't for a ceremony. It was for a week of ceremonies. A wedding lasted seven days and included feasting each of those days, a giant meal each of those days. And the attendants were responsible to make these meals come about. The point Jesus is making is simple. Who would come to a wedding to fast. It'll be an insult. 
He's saying so long as the bridegroom is with them, they should not, they cannot mourn or, or fast or, or not celebrate in the feast. And even for a member of the wedding party to mourn and fast during a week-long celebration was as silly as it was offensive. Jesus is saying that it would be as equally ridiculous to fast and grieve while the Messiah is in your midst as it would to celebrate when he leaves. Now, footnote. The disciples were gonna have a hard time with this. Collating the old with the new. The disciples would come to the point where they would mourn and grieve and reflect after his death. Remember what Jesus told his disciples the night before his, his execution in John 16? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep, you will lament, but the world will rejoice. When I'm dead, you're going to then be sad and mourning, but the world will be happy. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. The point is there's a time for celebration and there's a time for reflection. We, by the way, live in between those times. We live, in a sense, with feet in both territories. We're in the already but not yet part of the kingdom plan of God. We have the promise of the Spirit, his permanent abiding presence. He promised to never leave us or forsake us. He hasn't left us as orphans. We enjoy his presence But we also know that to live in this world is to experience persecution. To live in this world is to not be celebrated as celebrities, but to be ridiculed and scorned. So do we live in the time of fasting or feasting? And the answer is yes, a little of both. But one day, the time for mourning and fasting will be gone. That's what Jesus says. The time will come when there will be the Time to mourn. I'm with the men now. I'm with you now. When I leave, you're going to be sad, but there will be the great day. The marriage, what? Supper of the Lamb when the feasting will come back. Then he moves into two parables, two one little uh, verse stories. Illustration number two is this, old and new cloths. He illustrates the new and the old colliding. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it. The new from the old and the, a worse tear results. First of all, let's read from the back of the verse forward. There's a tear. There's a piece of clothing. We don't know if it's a blanket, if it's a cloak, if it's a jacket. There's this piece of clothing and it has a tear in it, Okay. He says, there's, there's a tear that you're dealing with. And the idea is to patch the tear and preserve the garment. Now, ladies, you're going to understand this. Well, you might not understand this uh, better than men because some of us men, me included, have made a mistake with this. What, were clothing, what was clothing primarily made of in Jesus' day? Wool. What happens when you wash and dry wool? It, I know that because I was in high school 
with a brand new wool sweater that I washed and dried and came out about the size of a piece of notebook paper. There was a whole industry of repairing. This is interesting. You you would make things out of wool and then you would shrink it and then wash it and shrink it again. You would continue to do that until you got the the, the garment as as, um, shrunk down as possible. And there was a whole industry of repairing people. And this was known. If you put a brand new piece of wool over the, over the hole of, a, of a, 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 an old garment and you sew it in and then you wash it, the, 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 the original garment has already shrunk and the sewn part on the patch will do what? And he says, it will rip and tear and be worse. Than, you have a worse hole than you began with. What's the point? He's teaching the incompatibility of the old scribal Judaism and the new way of life that Jesus is introducing called the gospel. Judaism is the old garment. In a minute, it'll be the old wineskin. Christianity, the way that Christ offers, is the new garment. It's the new wineskin, the new wine. And he's basically saying, what you're doing in your own self-righteous efforts is incompatible with my offer of grace. Illustration number three. Old wineskins and new wine. He gives another quick parable. No one puts new wine... And the best way to say new wine is not fully fermented wine. Wine that is still fermenting. New wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. Now, as I said, new wine hasn't finished its fermentation process and it will let off gases. Causes the container to expand. And the containers they had were skins, animal skins that had a, a, a stretching point beyond which they could not stretch without bursting or, or tearing. Now once you use a wine skin over time with the wine it expands and you use an older wine that's already expanded out or it expands with the new wine and it, and it reaches its, its uh, uh, expansion point, it's done stretching. But if you were to take stretched out skins that held wine and put brand new wine in them that was still fermenting, still letting off gas, what will happen? It's like a balloon. You blow too much air in and it, it pops. The point is that the older order and the new order are incompatible. Something new is happening. Now, This little five-verse unit points to a massive principle in Christianity. The new has come to replace the old. Not only that, the values that come with faith in Christ will oftentimes come with charges of being improper, not conforming. Sometimes, even being in opposition to God. Don't miss what's taking place here. The disciples of the Pharisees are claiming a religious superiority, a one-upsmanship 
to the disciples of Jesus. And by the way, the disciples of John were fasting and mourning. Why? Because John was just killed. He'll come back and replace and play that in for us, the scenario in just a few chapters. They're looking down on Jesus' disciples as men who were not as spiritual as they were. They had discernment. They had the angle. They were practicing the fasting. They were the ones bragging about, look at me, I'm in the know and you're not. In his excellent commentary on Mark, James Edwards says, the question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two Adam-like parables is not whether the disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding, I love this, fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. So the point that Mark is making here and telling this story where he does is Jesus is bringing a new way and it trumps the old way. It's incompatible with the old way. Let's bring that into our world for a minute. The same issues are still in play. The old way was self-righteousness, doing enough, trying harder, being good, being better, comparing yourself to others. It's the same issue. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature The old things have passed away, new things have come. So let's take that story, those three illustrations that Jesus just told, and see what Paul does to explain that. First of all, Paul's gonna tell us that this newness comes in our fight against sin. This newness comes and shows itself in our fight against sins. Romans chapter six, you can look there if you want. Romans six, verse four Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that Christ, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory, to the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in, here it is, newness of life. It's different. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly be also with him in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, verse 8 says, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the, the, the death that he died, he died once to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And then he goes on to say, you don't let sin reign in your mortal body. What's newness look like? Someone who comes to the gospel, who understands that they've been forgiven for sins, fights against their sin Newness, there's a new way of thinking, a new set of values, a new way of evaluating, a new estimation of yourself. Secondly, this newness comes in our understanding of how we grow. Ephesians 4, Paul says to the Ephesians, verse 17, 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk, you live, no longer as the Gentiles walk in the uselessness or futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They become callous, giving themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And as we've said so many times, you would expect Paul to say, you didn't learn how to live that way. You live differently than that. He doesn't say that. He says something completely unexpected, in fact. He says, but you, verse 17, excuse me, verse, nine, verse 20, but you did not learn Christ this way. Indeed, if you've heard him and may taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you become renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness and truth. In other words, the new way is involved with learning who Jesus is, what he's done, the gift he's given, the rescue he's provided. It's centered on him. Not just doing better and trying harder, or showing off in front of someone else. Then a last little footnote is this newness comes in our confidence. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the writer says, Brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. We draw near to God through the holiest of holies, the place that Jesus took us. So what does all this mean? Mark is showing a buildup toward having Jesus on death row in the Pharisees' mind. He's showing us that gospel belief and gospel living are incompatible with any other worldview and lifestyle. Let me say it this way. Listen, no one merely adds Jesus to their life. Jesus is incompatible with an unbeliever's life and values. Incompatible. When Jesus comes, he invades He's Lord and he takes over. He transforms for his glory and for our good. We so often try to smuggle effort and good work into our understanding and appreciation and response to the gospel. And sometimes we try to smuggle rituals and religious expressions in with us as well. We'll look at this in the next two weeks, but even as simple as church attendance. We can think to ourselves or to others that if we show up, God takes attendance and gives us smiley faces in his ledger if we're there. That's exactly what the Jews had thought. They completely misunderstood what the Sabbath was for, what worship is about 
I mean, what are, what are your efforts? What are your efforts compared to Christ's finished work? I think all of us, when we struggle with our assurance of salvation, have defaulted back to exactly where these Jews were thinking. We think, well, I, I don't fast enough or pray enough or give enough or attend enough or read my Bible enough or do whatever enough. And the answer to that is you're right. You're right. You, you have never done enough and you will never do enough. You can never do enough to rescue yourself from a certain and eternal hell. Never. Only God, through the death of his son, paying our penalty in securing our salvation, only that brings us into a right relationship with him and, and pleases God. This passage teaches us that the way to God is not through religious practices, but through joyful association with the Savior. Joyful association with the Savior. We just celebrated last week the fact that Jesus is not dead. He is alive. As a living Savior, he invites us into a relationship with him that, that's living, that's vital, that's real. How easy is it? Before we just throw these guys under the bus, how easy is it for us to do something religious, to do something Christian-esque for the hope and purpose that someone will notice us, even far worse, that God might elbow the angels, look down and say, finally, someone gets it. Versus coming to God and saying, because of who your son is, because of what he taught, because of why he died in my place, because of the fact that he was buried to prove he was dead and that he rose victorious on the third day and is alive now and forevermore, that's what I base my hope on. That's what I base my confidence on. We don't have the time now, but we, we have our own little club in our own minds, whether we ever, ever admit it tonight, of how we kind of judge people's religiosity and their spiritual maturity. How does that work when we turn it on ourselves? We are the groomsman. He is the groom. He, he is the reason. Not behavior modification, not a different way of living and thinking, all that comes after a real and vital relationship with him. You did not learn Christ this way, Paul says. What's your standard of judgment? Can I beg you to consider again, you don't add Jesus to your life. You submit to his ownership and rule over your life. He's not a part, he's the point. He's not something we engage in on Sundays, prayer before meals. He's the sovereign Lord who not only demands all allegiance and authority, but grants un 
this indescribable favor and kindness and grace and good to those who submit to him. Let me say it to this way. If you give your life to the Lord, I know what you're afraid you will give up. You will gain far more than you ever lose. <laughs> 